You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katzenstein is here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. We have Congressman Peter King, former Governor David Patterson, to give us the Republican and Democratic view of how things are going. Zach Williams, what's going on in Albany? Steve Cates, what when we look up in the sky, what's happening? Suzanne Miller, the real estate market, is it going better or worse and to start off the show a report from new jersey from the minority leader john the sunday morning john what's going on in new jersey well there's a lot of things going on in new jersey um you know the governor gave his speech this week it, it, it wasn't uh, a real enthusiastic speech with regard to the reality in new jersey uh he spoke a lot about you know what he thought was good that he's done but Frankly, New Jersey is not very affordable. Uh, people are, are, we lead the nation in out-migration. Uh, and that's not a stat you want to win at. You know, we want our people to stay here, be with their families. Uh, it happens at the, at the senior level and also at the young level. We invest about two hundred to $225,000 into each student that goes through our K-12. through Now our three-year-olds through 12. And some of them go to other states. They get their college degree and they say, they look around, it costs a living less, they make similar money, and uh, they take that education and go somewhere else. We talk about affordability all the time, and it starts with the way we're taxed in New Jersey. This governor's been bragging about an $8 billion surplus, which means we are clearly overtaxed. We've offered some common sense uh, tax cuts to help the middle class with regard to our uh, our. our Brackets and our tax have tax grossing and tax have not been adjusted for inflation since 1996. So we offered a plan that would take go back to the year 2000 and adjust them. And just to give you an example on, on a, a family making $110,000 a year, which is uh, pretty much middle class, they would save $1,600 on their state income tax. Now this is the type of thing that would really help a family. New York City uh, and the uh, MTA or the Port Authority wants to put in a congestion uh, tax. That means people from New Jersey going into Manhattan through the Holland Tunnel or Lincoln Tunnel have to pay, besides the toll, they have to pay a tax. What say you? That's absolutely ridiculous. I'm glad I don't work there. I've been looking for a job somewhere else. Well, what I'm, is, uh, you're right. What I'm saying to people is you're, you're going to stop people from coming into the theater or coming into uh, to see any doctors they want to see in New York City. And uh, I, I don't think it was warranted. I haven't been to New York City since 2019. And, and, and if they put that kind of a tax in, uh, I, don't, I, I think there will be less people from our side of the river. Uh, going in for any reason, um, you know, with more and more people that are staying home and home and commuting, doing telecommuting, um, they're going to have less people at restaurants. They're going to have less people spending uh, money in New York from New Jersey or other states, and, and it's absolute nonsense. You know, at, at some at some point in time, you're going to find businesses uh, opening up in New Jersey office buildings, and uh, maybe they'll have less jobs in New York. 
based on how the economy is going the last few years, I, I don't think that's pro uh, New York or pro New Jersey. Uh, what, we got about a minute or two left. What else would you like to tell people about New Jersey? What, 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 what's, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, we're, we are an off-year election state with regard to our state offices. We are up this year, all 120 uh, members of the legislature, 40 in the Senate, 80 in the, um, in the Assembly. And uh, we've been making progress, picking up seats over the last two cycles. I think that more middle-of-the-road New Jerseyans are realizing that things could be better. Uh, and after 22 years of one-party control, other than Governor Christie, um, maybe it might be time to uh, give a majority to the House's, uh, to the Republican side of the ledger and, um, and see, see if we could bring about some real change. Let me ask you one last question. 484,000 New Yorkers, New York City, New York State, have moved out in the last uh, 24 months. How is New Jersey faring on that? I mean, New Yorkers are going uh, Florida, Tennessee. In other words, no tax states. Yep, and, and, and it makes a lot of sense. Our, the plain fact of the matter is our taxes in this region are too high. They're taking too much money away from people's pocketbooks. Revenue that's supposed to go into uh, the municipalities in New Jersey is is stolen and spent at the state level. And we have an opportunity now where we can uh, send money back, where put it back where it belongs, and insist on a property tax levy cut for, for uh, New Jerseyans. And I think that all states should do this. We, we, we really need to lighten up on the, on the on the taxes, well, we're going to see a lot of people moving. North Carolina is kicking our butts. Uh, they now they ha- they have a corporate business tax of around two and a half percent, and in eight years they're going to have no corporate business tax. So, where are businesses going to locate? North Carolina. Um, well, we're at New Yorkers are going all the way to Florida. Yep, we are too. Well, we are John Dumais. Uh, John uh, John DeMeo, uh, Minority Leader, New Jersey State Assembly, thank you so much uh, for coming on and giving us an update. We'd love to call you once in a while and every so often to give us a continuous update. And uh, have a great Sunday. You too, sir. You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers interviewed by New York's first citizen. It's the Cats Roundtable. With us today is former Congressman Peter King to give us an update. What the heck is going on in Washington after the first week of Congress in session? Uh, good morning, uh, Congressman King. How are you today? John, I'm, I'm doing fine, and I'm still trying to figure out how well Congress is doing. It was a pretty tumultuous 10 days they had there. Uh, well, you know, the first week, the uh, you, know, you know, just trying to elect a speaker with... Uh, Evan McCarthy, it went to 15 ballots. I mean, this is the most in, uh, I guess, 150 years. Uh, it was really unfortunate. I didn't think there was any need for that. Uh, to me, Kevin McCarthy was the choice of over 90 percent of the Republicans. And I think some of those who held out and uh, delayed it and voted against him, they had no alternative candidate in mind. Uh, they had very, very little differences they would, uh, of, of, of substance. There were maybe differences of personality. Some of these guys wanted to get better committees for themselves. But I just thought it was irresponsible to do that. Having said that, Kevin McCarthy survived it. He is the speaker now. 
I think some of the concessions he made, some are good. Some of the others could be uh, not dangerous, but not what they seem to be. Like, for instance, there's one uh, he had where people uh, in Congress can offer amendments on any bill at any time. That sounds great, except that you have 435 members of Congress, and uh, they've tried this in the past. And if somebody wants to disrupt Congress, you can submit amendment after amendment after amendment. And you never get anything done. So you, you need, you have to get the speaker power to be able to shut things down when things get out of hand. And uh, otherwise, if you just leave it, uh, you know, the uh, you know to the inmates to run the asylum, you can end up getting nothing done. Uh, but having said that, I think Kevin will establish himself as a strong speaker, and he's going to go forward. It's too bad he had to go through all of this. But also, if we're talking about Congress, uh, and also, you know, they have passed some meaningful legislation. The first week. Uh, to pass legislation uh, to strip out the 87,000 IRS agents that were put into the budget. Now, I don't know what that'll do when it gets, uh, what'll happen to it when it goes to the Senate. I'm sure Chuck Schumer uh, you will not allow that. But having said that, it's a good message to send. And it shows that the Republicans are sticking to their uh, commitments. Also, the fact that he's not going to let Adam Schiff or uh, uh, Eric Swalwell be on the Intelligence Committee. I think that also is an assertion of power by uh, Kevin McCarthy, which is good. Both of them I found to be totally irresponsible. And then Elon Omar, who has so many anti-Semitic statements she's made, she will not be on the Foreign Affairs Committee because of what it does to our relationship with uh, Israel and everything else. So, no, I think that I think Kevin is off to a good start. After he got himself elected, he, he's off to a good start, and he's doing what has to be done. Uh, but an added issue of Congress, which comes back right here to New York, is uh, George Santos. Uh, I've never seen any candidate or any elected official where everything, everything in his background appears to be a lie. There's even a, a column I saw on Newsday the other day. Uh, we're not even sure if he's an American citizen because at times he's mentioned about uh, being born in Brazil or possibly born in Brazil. Uh, then you, even though he uh, has always claimed he's gay, he had a wife. Was that a, a wife that was brought about just to get him a, a citizenship? Again, so much about him as a mystery man. And uh, because he lied, and that's the only word I can use on so many issues that I give uh, Nassau County Republican Chairman Joe Cairo credit. He had a news conference this week with virtually every elected Republican official from Nassau but- County. And later on, Jesse Garcia joined in saying that George Santos should resign. Congressman King, uh, my one concern when uh, we went through the 15 ballots uh, on that night, and I stayed up to, I think, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning watching it, Kevin McCarthy could be put through this on every vote. Under the new rules, any one member of Congress demand a vote on the speaker staying in office. They call it vacating the chair. And he brings that up, and that would be a whole vote on that. And what you would do is, if the Democrats vote yes, to remove the Republican speaker, all you would need is five Republicans voting with them uh, who want to make names for themselves, headlines for themselves. So it puts the speaker in a very difficult position when he's out there negotiating. Listen, he's going to have to negotiate with a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and to make progress, even if he makes tremendous progress in the negotiations, he has to make concessions because they control two-thirds of the uh, branches of government. Uh, that's a difficult and, uh, job, uh, you know, yeah, it it's a and very, very difficult energy. job because it seems like the Democrats, the Democratic uh, Senate and Democratic Congress uh, 
they're aligned 100%. They are now uh, under Hakeem Jeffries, who is from New York, and he's the Democratic leader. And uh, so all you need is five or six Republicans who focus on whatever concession or whatever compromise Kevin uh, McCarthy has to make and use that as an excuse to try to bring him down. And that's a tough way to go into negotiations, knowing that unless you negotiate a perfect bill, which you can't do when you're in the minority the way we are overall, uh, that uh, you could have somebody moving to knock you out. It's uh, it, 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 what we saw last week. I mean, that whole idea of the 15 ballots, if we have to go through that all during the year, I'm just hoping Kevin can establish himself early on as a strong speaker and get public support which he will need when it comes to the tough bargaining on issues like raising the debt limit, on different spending bills, on aid to different states and localities. All of those uh, all involve compromise. Now, and on, you can uh, always find something in there you don't like. On the Santos uh, situation, on the George Santos situation, he's been sworn in, and he, he, sa- he has, sa- he has said, uh, no, no effing way am I resigning. Mm-hmm. I understand... Uh, Nassau County saying uh, this guy should resign. Then it goes to a new election. Who's going to run? Are you going to run, Congressman King? No, I'm, I'm not going to run. Uh, the other night on your show, we uh, humorously suggest, uh, suggested Al, Al should run. That would really turn things upside down. No, but we could have some uh, several good candidates up there. But, the guy, but then you're taking a chance. You're taking a vote yeah. away from Kevin McCarthy. We do. That is the chance. And that the other chance, though, John, is we have many local elections coming up in Nassau County this uh, this year. And people don't realize that Nassau County is now a Democratic county as far as registration. Now, we won big in Nassau last year, but the voters are still registered as Democrats. And when they see this thing with Stantos going on, they say, what are you guys doing? Are you going to let it, Are you going to be quiet? So just from the political perspective, if we don't uh, speak out against Santos, I call him to resign. We can end up doing poorly in the local elections next year, which are really important. They're the ones that have zoning uh, and everything let's else. Look, let's look at the Democratic point of view. They have people on the Democratic side might be even worse. I yeah, mean, Adam Schiff, Adam Schiff has not told the truth in almost his life. Uh, the Omar in Omar uh, in uh, where's she from? Minnesota. Minnesota, uh, yep, Minnesota. I, I mean, I, I don't think she could be. I don't think she would pledge allegiance to the flag. No, and she's uh, had many anti-Semitic statements so, and everything. So, all I'm saying is, Minnesota. if the if the Republicans are going to wear white shoes and white socks and want to be straight arrows, it's got to be the same for both sides. Except that in this case, I can tell you, in Nassau County, the reaction we're getting is so hostile to Santos. And also the fact that there's $750,000 that he uh, donated to his uh, to the campaign when the year before he was only making a salary of $55,000 and was being yeah, But that's us saying it. If the U.S. attorney, and I'm saying, if the U.S. attorney, if he, did, if he broke the law and the U.S. attorney goes after him, that's fine. I, I agree with that 100%. You know? I think, John, it would hurt us more politically. And I, I'm leaving out the whole moral and ethical issues. I think it's uh, it's right to say you should resign morally. But even politically, 
This is hurting us. So, we can hurt us so much politically. Every every congressional seat we have on Long Island is a marginal seat. There is no solid Republican seat. We had to fight hard for every one of them. And these local elections, like in town and North Hempstead, where Santos runs, that had been under Democratic control since 1989. And we just finally won it back in 2021. Now coming up for an election this year, with Santos hanging overhead, we could lose the town again. There's a number of council seats, supervisor seats. So it's uh, Santos has put us in a terrible, terrible position. I understand why Kevin McCarthy would yes. like us to go slow, but on the other hand, it's going to be really hard to... I Understood. Yeah. Congressman King, thank you for bringing us up to date on Republican politics in, in, in Washington and Long Island, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Great. You got it, John. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Only in America can a guy from anywhere go to sleep upon her and wake up. And now, let's go to my conversation with Dr. Sky. With us today is Steve Tates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. And he's with us every weekend. We look up in the skies, and he's going to tell us what we're going to see up there. Well, John, we have an amazing story to report here to your audience and the listeners of this radio show far and wide across America. SpaceX, as we know, has been the leader of getting rockets into space, and we wish them well. But here we go. Probably as early as late February or maybe even March, they're going to do something incredible. Elon Musk is betting that his new SpaceX Starship rocket with this incredible monster heavy booster rocket known as Booster 7 will actually go to orbit. Now, what's the backstory on this? The Starship itself is a 165-foot-tall rocket that will eventually send people to the moon and to Mars. And this big booster rocket is so incredible. The Starship itself has six Raptor engines. This is a new technology for them and SpaceX, but the big Booster 7 has 33 Raptor engines. John, it has an amazing power of lift of 16 million pounds, which is bigger than any rocket we've seen. But what's really bizarre, this sounds like science fiction. There's a device that holds the rocket up at Starbase, Texas, called Mechazilla. It's this big launch tower. And what they're going to eventually try to do, as we see these booster rockets come back in soft land, how about not only seeing the Starship land right next to this big, giant, massive crane, I call it, it's going to grab it like a robot arm to lower it down onto the ground. And the same thing with the giant booster rocket. It's like this gigantic thing like from Godzilla that hopefully will be able to grab both the Starship and the booster rocket and have a grappling arm to grab it as it's coming down. Isn't that the most amazing thing? It sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? It is amazing, but I'll tell, I'll tell, I'll tell you something, one thing, Steve. Most of all your fuel is used to, to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Is there any thoughts in the future of what other technology we would use? Uh, because, because well, it doesn't seem yeah. like uh, it's the right thing way to go. Well, chemical rockets, John, by many people's estimation, a lot of these new space scientists are saying are yesterday's news. And here's an answer. We're developing new technologies that even may go into the nuclear side to get propulsion and move things away from the Earth. But just let everybody know this. In order to escape the Earth's gravity, a rocket needs to go seven and a half miles per second as it continues to move up and away from the Earth. And the problematic thing, as you just reported, and accurate as it is, is that with chemical rockets, you expend so much of your energy. Look at the old Saturn V moon rocket. It did about a minute and a half burn 
consuming, get a load of this, which each of those big F1 engines, each engine was using 1,350 gallons of fuel per second, a combination of liquid oxygen and something called RP1, which is kerosene. So hopefully, even beyond what Elon Musk is doing, hopefully new technologies, maybe even like nuclear, that can help propel rockets away. But the whole concept of having a nuclear rocket I'm sure many people might have second thoughts saying, well, what happens if the thing doesn't go and it explodes? But I wanted to mention the mystery of the week as always. This is interesting. And a simple question like this, why is the sky dark at night? Now, people may think, well, that's the most ridiculous question they've ever heard. But it goes deep into science, John. It's something called Olver's Paradox. And what's that? And it says simply this, that the universe is not old enough to fill the sky with starlight. But there may be an infinite number of stars, but the light has not arrived yet. And the observable universe contains too few stars to fill the sky with starlight across the whole sky. So the point I'm making is, if that were true, well, if there's so many stars out there, why are they not all clustered together and the overpowering light of them just continuing so you have no darkness? It just shows you that even though the universe is infinite, light speed takes a long time for even those stars at their most remote edges of the universe right now to even get to us. So simply, I'm happy that the sky is dark because I wouldn't be happy myself. I would say you. I'm telling you, I sit back and I look at the sky sometimes and I wonder. I really, really wonder. Anything new with Mars or, uh, or the moon or, or with any of the rovers? Well, John, we can only tell people this way. The Chinese are having difficulty with their spacecraft. And they did something exceptional with the Mars probe. They were the first nation to actually send an orbiter there to send a descent module like a rover and also, a, of course, a landing craft. So they're having problems. Nobody understands why, either communication-wise or mechanical failure. So all that they did in such a short amount of time, no nation had done this. In other words, America sent spacecraft there, and then eventually we eventually put a small rover, then we put landers on Mars. But they did it in one series of uh, you know, space projects. That's amazing. And finally, there's a new planetary object that we're going to talk about real quick. It's called TOI-700E. What's that? It's another one of those exoplanets, this one 100 light years away, John, that's around a red dwarf star. And it goes around that little red dwarf star every 28 days. But astronomers are saying, and again, this is theoretical, that it may be the most or one of the most Earth-like planetary objects, a little smaller than the Earth, but that it may even have in that habitable zone the right conditions for life. So the point is, we're discovering more of these planetary objects out there. And I've always said this way. Well, in all that vast universe, and I'm sure you would agree, I'm sure there's some sort of life form out there. At least I would hope so. But we're all hoping that it's friendly. Right, John? Absolutely. Steve Cates, uh, Dr. Sky, thank you for expanding our minds and allowing us to look up in the sky and... and and at least we wonder a lot. Thank you so much. Absolutely, John. And I want to tell everybody to go to wabcradio.com for the Dr. Sky Experience, both our blog and our podcast. Thank you for having me, John. With us today is former Governor David Patterson and a lot of things to talk about. What's going on in Albany? What's going on with George Santos? Uh, finally, uh, Mr. Chang has been seating in the Assembly. Governor Patterson, Happy New Year again. Give us an update. What's going on in Albany? Let's start with Governor Kathy Hochul. She gave her State of the State address on Tuesday, and she 
went right to the issue of crime, which I kind of liked. And she congratulated the legislature for what they did on bail reform in 2019. But she then said that I think there's more to talk about and we should all come to the table and discuss it. And I saw that as a shot across the bow, that, in other words, she hasn't forgotten. Well, it, it's all, it also looks like she's putting her foot down uh, with the judge. Yes, exactly. And uh, that this is one of the things she's going to want in the budget negotiations. And I don't think it's that hard for them to give that. In other words, it's not like give it, them asking to, like, for instance, Legal Aid Society says this will change nothing. Well, that's their opinion. But it didn't say that it was going to be a detriment. So, um, you know, giving the judges one last opportunity to, when a defendant is standing before him, you can learn a lot about when you see somebody standing before you. I remember that from my old court days. And I think that uh, that was well done. She also introduced the mental health issue, which really hasn't been introduced in the last three or four state of the states. And we obviously have deinstitutionalized to such a point that we don't have enough beds. Also, we don't even have the professionals that can provide the assistance to so many people who are suffering from mental health problems compounded by the pandemic, which created more. So uh, I, I thought it was uh, pretty good on her part. Meanwhile, Eric Adams, the mayor, introduced his budget, which would be $103 billion. And he talked about all the aid that we gave to migrants and made a plea to Washington that we need more money. This is a problem that's never going to get solved unless Washington, Washington is what's pushing these mayors not to turn their backs on the migrants, but Washington isn't giving them any help. So I admired that, uh, that Mayor Adams, you know, kind of let them know that he's keeping score here. And uh, he also made a sort of peculiar comment at the end that he didn't want to say anything about George Santos because he needs every uh, New York legislator to be bringing money back to New York. Well, number one, Santos never said he's ever going to do that. And number two, whoever would replace him probably would be someone who could help bring money back to New York and not create a distraction. Where do we go from here? So what's also interesting, Sean, is that the last two presidents of our country seem to have trouble remembering what they did with top secret files. In this situation, I think that former President Trump has more of an advantage because the law protects him a whole lot more than it does a vice president. But some of the answers that both of them gave, and I know that we have a, uh, a society that right now is pretty acrimonious, either you're on one side or the other, but they're both sort of saying the same thing. I don't know how or anything got there. And I just think it's a, it's a bad look for the country. Forget about, you know, who's progressive, well, who's conservative, or that governor. Kind of. But what's going on, it seems like uh, uh, the Democrats are going after the Republicans to make them look bad. The Republicans are going after the Democrats to look bad. Uh, I mean, instead of just doing what's best for our country. Uh, and, and by the way, I don't know how important those those papers are how top secret they are so because sometimes i understand from my washington days a lot of stuff is marked top secret just for top secret and it doesn't mean anything i actually agree um but what i think is just so interesting is how outraged the democrats were that trump had some files over at uh, mar-a-lago and then they you know went and raided the place and got them back and then 
knowing that they would get the same treatment, the Democrats held information, not all the Democrats, but those involved, about President Biden's issue until the election was over, which, you know, I, I probably the Republicans would have done the same thing. But the thing that, that the overall issue that, that I'm addressing is probably one of the reasons that there's so much acrimony on this subject is that both sides are at fault. I think uh, I think all sides are at fault. Now, the, uh, my only concern with the uh, University of Pennsylvania is that the Chinese gave $55 million to the University of Pennsylvania. And then the University of Pennsylvania, on or before the same time, uh, promised to give a million dollars a year to President Biden for life. And the, the, the chairperson was then made an ambassador. Right. And there's another issue here, John. If you or me were to go and speak at the University of Pennsylvania and say, though, anything that was derogatory about the government of China, do you think either of us would be invited back again? Never. That's the problem. Never. These outside companies heavily investing in these private institutions they're the, not firing nuclear warheads at us. They're doing it the stealth way. And they have a different clock than we have. They don't operate. I agree with you. Cycles. Governor, I agree with you 100%. I worry about our country because what we talked about, uh, secret papers and top secret papers, some of them being nonsense. It is very, very concerning all our politicians worry about the, our country first and money and politics second. Well, it'll be a while before that happens, John, but the spirit of what you said is the way this country was founded, the way we grew, the way we corrected some of our egregious errors even when we were founded, and I hope that we can still instill in, instill, instill in each other that that's the most important way and the best way the country can run. Understood. Um, 19 of the last 21 great civilizations have fell apart. They didn't fall apart from being attacked. They fell apart from within. You're absolutely correct. I worry about our country. I've said it many times. I worry about 2076, the 300th year of our country, that our country will remain the democracy that we know it of. Thank you so much, uh, Governor Patterson. Thank you, John. Where do you think we should hold a party when that date comes? Uh, we should hold, hopefully in Washington and, and New York. You got it. Take care. Take care. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. on Sunday in New York. So many things are happening in New York over real estate. With us today is Suzanne Miller, president of Empire State Properties. Interest rates are going up. Uh, construction uh, is less. 421A, uh, which is the uh, incentives from the state to, to, to build new homes, has, has not really ha- has expired. And I don't think the new one has gone into effect. Uh, Suzanne Miller. Give us your evaluation. What the heck is going on in New York in the real estate? Hey, John, you're you're nice to be here. You're exactly right. It's very uncertain times right now. But this has been a pretty good week. We see that inflation is slowing a bit. 
and the stock market did have a good week. But the, the sales in New York City right now, the sellers are going to have to adjust their price because there's a lot less inventory. There's 17% less listings on the market right now than there were last year because sellers don't have to sell. They're, they don't want to pay more interest to buy something else. So they're literally just taking their places off the market and there's less inventory. So I yeah, think- it comes down to why should I sell my house that I'm paying 3% interest in and the next house I have to pay 6% interest or 7% interest. Right. So they're not anxious to sell and they're just removing it from the market. So more, the rental market is doing very well because people need to live someplace. There's less sales. But I do think second quarter people, the sellers will adjust. And I think New York is going to come down. I think the price is going to come down about 10%. And we're going to start to see people enter the market. That's what I think is going to happen. But right now, rentals are doing very well. They're continu- people, the jobs are continuing. New York seems to still be hiring, and the best-paying jobs are in the urban areas. So we're still seeing the people coming here to rent. The rental market is still off the chart, really very high. New York City in particular, an average one-bedroom is about 5000 And as you know, Brooklyn, you're probably fully rented. Uh, well, we're fully rented in Brooklyn, absolutely. But new construction is not happening at the rate it used to happen. It's not. It's, and a lot of it is because of what you said. There's no incentive. Why would you build something if you're not going to get any incentive? It's the 421A. We, have to, we must do something. Politically, we need leaders like you to do something. We have to incentivize these developers to build. Why would they? Why would you? I, I, I agree with you. Uh, what other parts of the market are you concerned about? I'm looking. I, I think it's very interesting, Mayor Adams' idea that I'm, I'm watching very closely. The, the commercial vacancy right now, we're 54% vacancy post-pandemic on commercial spaces. So because the workforce has changed and people are working from home, there's less need for commercial space. So the commercial buildings are really feeling it. 54% vacancy factor. And I'm watching, I don't know if you've seen this, one Wall Street, they converted their building. It came on the market this year. There's 566 apartments. They went to condo. And I think they're going to do very well. It's a beautiful building. It was built in 1930. And I think we're going to see more of this. We have to look out because it's going to cost a lot of money to to do this. There's issues with windows and lighting and zoning. But I think that it's a a good move. I, I like it. What's your thought on that? Uh, I think we should not give up on the uh, on the uh, office market yet. I think we should give it a little bit more time. Uh, let the CEOs have a little bit more courage and put their foot down and say, come back to work, otherwise find a new job. Well, I think Goldman Sachs did almost that, laying off 4,000 people. I don't know how many of those 4,000 are in New York, but the people that didn't come to the office, I'm sure don't have a job. Well, maybe like where I work, I work in a mixed-use building on 51st Street. It's part hotel, part commercial, part condo. So maybe we could, maybe some mixed-use buildings, you don't have to make them all uh, commercial, residential. But if the demand is residential and we can get the financing and the cost to borrow obviously is a lot, but if we could talk about, if we could switch some of it and transfer some of it to residential in some of these areas, Listen, we have to feed the little bodegas downstairs and the drugstores. There's no people in these buildings. I think it's a pretty good idea. Well, the the other thing, the other problem we have, because the traffic has gone down, 
has gone down. Uh, the commercial stores, there's yeah. four rent signs every place I go. Everywhere you go. That was before the COVID, though. People forget if you walked along Madison Avenue or Third Avenue in the 60s to the 80s, it was all empty. I think that's just a question of dollars. I think these, we're going to have to lower the rent in some of these spaces. It's just not the price. That's, that is, uh, I think, a, a dollar value because it's been, they've been vacancies along Madison, Greenwich Village, Bleecker Street. These have been empty for years. And that affects the, the end users. It affects the condos. It affects the co-ops. They need these spaces to, to pay the bills for their buildings. And it's, it's a trickle effect. 484,000 uh, people have moved out of New York City, New York State in the last 24 months. And most of them are taxpayers, uh, middle income and above. Uh, I understand 16% were, were millionaires. And in exchange... We've gotten a few hundred thousand migrants. Somewhere along the line, the city or state is going to blow up. I, I think that we're, we are losing our high-income earner because China is now opened. We're seeing the students. But again, this is affecting more of the working class, the, not the, the $100,000 earner. The higher earner are going to tax haven cities. So I agree with you, John. I think that we're losing so many high... Who's going to pay for these services? We are getting the demand for rentals is very strong by the young new hire, the the new the international consultants. But again, it's we're losing the high. Who's going to pay for the services, the sanitation, the, the taxes? That's it's an issue. Suzanne Miller, one knowledgeable lady of what's going on in real estate in New York. Thank you for coming on, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Always a pleasure, John. Thank you. With us today is uh, Zach Williams of the New York Post, Albany. And uh, he, a lot of things are happening in Albany, and uh, he's going to give us the revelations. Uh, Zach, there's so many things happening in Albany. What, what do you want to start with? <laughs> Indeed, uh, there is a lot going on, and thanks again for uh, having me. You know, this week saw the governor give her state of the state address where she outlined her legislative priorities for upcoming year, which included some tweaks to bail reform, as well as a bunch of really interesting proposals, electrification of buildings. But I would say the talk in the Capitol has really been dominated by this crazy fight over her pick to lead the Court of Appeals, Hector LaSalle. Now, this Brooklyn judge has really drawn fire from organized labor in particular. And at this point, the governor is going to need at least some Republican votes to get him approved by a majority of the 63-member state Senate. Now, there's just one little problem. There's the Judiciary Committee that includes a whole bunch of opponents of LaSalle, and they're going to have a hearing this upcoming Wednesday, and all signs point to not just the committee saying they're not recommending this guy, but to actively say, no, we do not approve him, and he is not going to go to the floor. So there's that. And then things took yet, a, yet another step up the ladder of escalation when the governor claimed earlier this week that she doesn't need the committee to approve him, that there is a constitutional requirement that the full Senate give a uh, you know, vote up or down her nominee. 
And that's a lot different than how we've seen the process work in Washington. You know, you might recall a long time ago the phrase Borking, a nominee coming out, Robert Bork, the controversial nominee named by Ronald Reagan. And many other Supreme Court nominees have kind of had to walk, you know, the tightrope through the committee is the only way to get approved. And, you know, the whole controversy with Merrick Garland and all about that committee not giving him a hearing. Now, LaSalle's getting that from the Senate Democrats. But they say they are well within their rights, the co-equal branch of state government, to vote him down in committee on the floor however they want to do it. So this could end up in the courts. We'll see. This judge was one of the seven judges their committee picked. So they're in New York. The state constitution specifically names the Commission on Judicial Nominations as the body that takes all the job applications, if you will, from anyone that wants to be the top judge in the state. And they come up with a list of seven people from which any governor must pick their nominee. Now, this time around, Hector LaSalle was one of those seven people. There, but there were other people on that list that especially political progressives really wanted to get picked because they want to push the court in, in a much more left-leaning direction. You know, right now there's kind of a, a, um, a progressive block of four judges and then a relatively conservative, but not conservative per se, block of judges, of five of which they fear Hector LaSalle would, you know, would uh, add a vote, which, you know, would make it five to four, like it was under Janet uh, DeFiori when she was chief judge. So there's a lot riding on this, and it kind of comes down to a lot of different boring appeals and whatnot. But, you know, LaSalle opponents have, po- you know, presented him as kind of a, 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 a conservative and you know, he's nowhere near Neil Gorsuch or some of, you know, the big conservative conservatives that we know of on the Supreme Court. A lot of people have kind of compared him to Anthony Kennedy or even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, you know, in today's Democratic Party uh, wouldn't exactly be the, the furthest left person out there. You can't have complete control by the legislature over what the governor does. Well, you know, the state Senate can can vote the way that they want. Right now, the fight is over whether the whole body must hold that vote. You know, the governor is still taking a big long shot with with LaSalle. He needs 32 votes. She's hoping the Republicans will give her 21 of those 32 simply because, you know, if LaSalle goes down, you know, she's not going to nominate someone more conservative. She's going to have to nominate someone uh, more to the left. So they're going to take him at the best that they got. And all they would need would be 11 Democrats out of 42 to vote alongside with them to get LaSalle confirmed in the most ugly of ways. The only problem is right now is it sure looks like he's going to go down in committee and the governor would have to sue the state Senate and the courts. And then uh, who knows where things could go from there. Well, on this big showdown, uh, I I think this is going to show whether uh, she has a little bit of muscle at least or no muscle. And and, uh, I'm sure that the Republicans are going to vote for him because uh, they can only get somebody worse. (laughs) Keep in mind, this is Albany, though. You know, what happens if you have 11 Democrats, 21 Republicans, and then any one of those 32 senators decides to start playing brinksmanship? This is all we're talking about Albany, not Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in Albany, you know, just a few years ago, the state Senate was all controlled effectively by a single centrist state senator, Simka Felder. So we'll see what happens. You know, right now the fight is over whether this nomination gets to the floor. But you're right. You know, this isn't just about a judge to lead the Court of Appeals. This is a showdown between the governor and the labor unions 
as well as criminal justice reformers, as well as kind of a smattering of other left-leaning uh, forces. And then on the other side is the governor and some of the most prominent Latino politicians in the state. You know, um, it's not just about ideology either, because, you know, you'll note that, uh, you know, le- a left-leaning representative like Mindy Velasquez endorsed LaSalle. So did Adriano Espaillat. Zach, I'm surprised that the Hispanic community hasn't stepped up even more. Well, they have been in the last couple of days. You know, Ruben Diaz Jr., just earlier today, one of the most prominent, you know, uh, Latino politicians in the whole state, um, spoke in support, you know, kind of put his his legacy as a uh, as a, uh, you know, a justice warrior, if you will, on the line. You know, certainly he's someone that came up through the Bronx, um, earned a lot of people's respect for, for championing the borough. And he's back in LaSalle. You know, there's digital ads that have been put out there, six-figure buy, um, I was told just earlier today. So, you know, the, the cavalry has kind of been summoned. But, you know, I think anyone that kind of just looks at the situation is still just kind of baffled that the governor picked this fight with the legislature. You know, uh, she just got elected, largely with the help of labor unions. She didn't get a uh, a deal before December 31 when she gave him all that money for a raise. She, she, she gave every, legisl- every member of the Democratic uh, State Senate Conference a $32,000 reason for supporting LaSalle if she had kind of used that raise they approved, right? Well, nobody really understands. You, you said that uh, uh, she's made some attempt to have some uh, bail uh, reform fixed. Well, I think one key part in all of that to watch is the whether or not there'll be substantive changes to what's called the, the least restrictive standard. You know, this is basically, you know, a lot of times you've heard maybe about cases where, where so-and-so, um, you know, committed a crime, people felt he should have been held, but the state law compels judges to release criminal defendants, well, not release them, but to give them the least restrictive conditions pre-trial. Now, sometimes that might mean they get jailed, but other times that can mean an ankle monitor being released on their own reconnaissance, you know, any, any, any sort of options. But, you know, it kind of tilts the pre-trial decisions about whether to hold someone in favor of criminal defendants. Now, many people would say this is the heart of bail reform. The governor was proposing that this standard be removed for, I believe she said, serious crimes. Now, we don't know what that means. What's a serious crime? I don't know. Some people say larceny. Some people might, well, all people will probably say murder. But the bottom line is we don't really know what she's going to propose on anything until we see that budget language, which I hear might come out next week, but definitely sometime later this month. And then we'll really get to dive into the details and I can share with you what she's really going to do on bail. Understood. Uh, Zach Williams, thank you for your update, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again uh, to, to find out uh, what's going on, and uh, you're, you're one of the most accurate guys I know. Uh, well, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock, so we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.